0: Hey, Andrew. Hi, Craig. We just wanted to give our listeners a quick heads up that the Roundhouse does center on a case of sexual assault on a native reservation in North Dakota. So for folks for whom that might be a little bit of a harrowing experience, uh, just be forewarned. We don't read any like passages that are pretty upsetting or anything like that, though, right? No,
1: we don't. Okay,
0: I think it's fine just uh, tread lightly if that is a thing uh, that would uh, impair your listening experience
1: This is a HeadGum Podcast
0: While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary Plus these are books you should have read by now Want to talk about?
1: I don't know. um How's your Sunday? What have you done? Have you mur- Marie Kondoed anything
0: since I that show came out? I haven't Marie Kondoed a gosh dang thing. All right, my well, life. I guess we can't talk about it. Well, it's not an
1: interesting conversation yeah. if you didn't do any of it.
0: Well, I did have to move a bunch of stuff out of my closet so I could put beer in there. I don't think that's the same <laughs> as Marie Kondoing. Yeah. Though, beer does spark joy if beer does spark joy especially beer that is not yet drinkable but will be drinkable in the near will future be drinkable
1: that you made with your bare hands your beer hands my
0: beer bare hands welcome to overdue it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name's andrew have you marie Kondoed anything
1: no we're gonna do our bookshelf tomorrow i think
0: yeah ironically hmm
1: is that irony but yeah <laughs> I don't know. Everyone on book Twitter thinks that Marie Kondo is personally going to come into their house and, like, throw all their books in a pile and then burn them and make you watch. But I feel like that's not...
0: No, that like, doesn't most seem to books, be her deal.
1: And even if I didn't do a book podcast, how many books are that you read are you honestly ever, ever going to go back to again? Because there's so much to read. I, can't, I just can't read things multiple times. No, and... Except for the Wheel of Time. The only <laughs> exception is for the Wheel of Time. Okay, so you read The The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich.
0: Yes. And it was recommended to us by one of our Patreon supporters, Carol, as well as a couple other people, um, when we were talking about native authors recently. So
1: Yeah, so after we read the um the Indian and the Cupboard books, we had we had lamented the state of that book's like representation because yes. it was mostly bad and put out a call like admittedly something we probably should have d- dug into deeper ourselves but put out, put out a call for other books that people had enjoyed that were actually from native authors and yeah this was one one among quite a few yeah and, Urge- and happened to be on our yeah. list already so yeah. yeah
0: um and she is uh i guess mostly known for this like series of books both the trilogy ish that this is a part of if you want to call it that her like revenge trilogy as <sighs> yeah, her wiki feel, or the, biblio or justice calls it, the justice trilogy is, trilogy is
1: what i found but as far as i can tell it's a trilogy now because three books are out i don't know that it was intended to be like a <laughs> no. trilogy that starts and stops because yeah that her um most notable series is this one um the first book was called love medicine it was her first novel that came out in 1984 yes Um, And it's derived from a short story that she wrote in 79. Um, And it's a part of a series of novels that I think the last one came out in like 2005 or so. But it's it's like eight or nine, if I remember correctly. And they all take place in the same uh, native reservation and and the areas around it. And they... If they're not a continuous narrative, then they're at least in the same like fictional universe, and, right?
0: Yeah, these books are as well. Um, that includes the Plague of the Doves, which was a Pulitzer finalist. Um, this book. What a nice
1: sounding plague, by <laughs> the way. <laughs> the
0: Plague of Doves, yeah. Um, and La Rose, which I believe is named after a character. And they've they all take place in the same fictional reservation as you said, and it's been likened to Faulkner's like fictitious Yakna Patafa, I think is how it's pronounced, which is that region I think in the. That's
1: Klingon.
0: <laughs> Shit, my, it maybe? sounds like Klingon. <laughs> a bunch of his books, Absalom, Absalom, As I Lay Dying, all like take place in this fictional county, um, mm-hmm. in the south. So it, it is similar. Their characters are narrators in some books that are background characters in others, um, and they take place over you know a different timeline, so she can explore different generations and different issues as they yeah,
1: come and out. I want to say that the main character in the roundhouse is like the grandson or something of the main character in plague of doves like there are there are definitely links though they're not, it's maybe, not a but yeah something like that yeah, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. um and what else about her she uh is um she was one of the first women to attend Dartmouth which I thought was interesting um, huh. in the class of like Man, 72. those milestones
1: are all just a little bit more recent than, yeah, you, right. than you would want
0: them to be, huh? Uh-huh. A <laughs> hawk? Um, and then she went on to Johns Hopkins where she got her master's and I think she met uh, the person she co-wrote Love Medicine with, Michael Doris at Dartmouth um, and then they later got married um, and had some kids um, but they kind of formed their relationship after they wrote that story and the novel together. And then, as you said, that kind of started her career down this path um, and in this uh, this fictional universe. Um, and she also runs a bookshop, Birchbark Books in Minnesota, which focuses on Native writers and, and Native culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we said, this book was published in 2012. It won the National Book Award um, following *Plague of Doves* as a Pulitzer finalist, so that's a uh, pretty good, pretty good uh, record so far. Pretty good, pretty good. Song <laughs> um, reviews, pretty good. Yes. <laughs> uh, she grew up in uh, North Dakota. Both her parents taught at a at a boarding school there, and that's I,
1: just north of the Dakota that I spent part of my childhood in.
0: What can you remind me? How old you were when you lived in? south dakota
1: i always Uh, um so it was was three or four years and it ran from me being like five or six up until i was nine ish so um in the middle of i want to say third grade we left hmm
0: yeah and then you moved right to ohio from there moved
1: right to ohio from there rural ohio and it was
0: a big it was a big culture shock i'm just yeah i'm sure we've talked about this before on other episodes but like because I never moved as a kid, I feel like that factors a lot into how I feel about like the place where I live my life now and my attachment to place versus Mm -hmm. people who did not move around or who did move around a lot and maybe might feel more comfortable doing that as they move forward. Yeah. I don't know. I I, I don't know. Yeah. Cause I thought I spent a lot of my like young
1: adulthood wanting to not be in the place that I was in, which mm. was still Ohio (laughs) for the
0: record. Um, (laughs) Um. so getting back to the, the roundhouse, the the place where it is set is fictional, but it is still like the real world. It is still the United States as we know them. It is still a reservation of, uh, I think the main character is Ojibwe uh, with, and the Ojibwe with the Chippewa are part of the, correct me if I got this wrong, Andrew, Anishinaabe people.
1: Yeah, so my, my understanding is that Ojibwe or Ojibwa, depending okay, on the pronunciation. No, they're both, I, I, as far as I can tell, they're both correct. They're both used. Okay, okay. Um, but they are also, that that particular branch um, is known as also the Chippewa, which is a most, mostly United, the U.S. thing, and then the Salto, which is a uh, French-Canadian thing related to So St. Marie, I guess. Oh my, okay. Um, but yeah, they are... The what are my stats here? They're the fifth largest Native American population in the U.S. And then they're the second largest First Nations population in Canada. So okay. actually a little bit more of a presence in Canada than they are in the U.S. But uh hmm. yeah, that's that's like the main it's the main thing I found. I, I researched about them. I know that they have a native language that is still spoken today. Like there are still people who are fluent in that language um it's primarily spoken now by older people but as um like interest in like preserving that culture spikes among younger native americans i think there there's been a bit of a like an effort to make sure that it doesn't die out
0: yes and that is reflected in the book you know the book is set in 1988 i believe and there are older characters that you meet that some of whom i think were even alive in the late 1800s um who do speak languages that you know the young people in the book do not speak and uh they talk a lot about kind of switching between them um some of that kind of code switch stuff happens as well so yeah that's interesting
1: um and the, the last thing i want to talk about with uh, respect to erdrick is this this thing called the native american renaissance now it, it seems like whenever <laughs> whenever literature or culture runs into a time period where a specific group of people actually starts getting their stories like told and published by established publishing houses. It happens to be called a Renaissance. Sure. So that's neat. So I know we've talked about the Harlem Renaissance. We've talked about, um, what's the name of the movement that, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez was was part of. I feel like he was part of some kind of renaissance or, or something.
0: Well, that's is that like Latin American authors? I don't know what yeah, the particular like title that. that we might have dubbed it. But just is, like but yeah,
1: it seems like whenever we just call it a renaissance when white people start paying attention to yep. the stories that, that different the different cultures tell. But um. So that she is, uh, Erdrick is part of the second wave of this Native American Renaissance. So this, a lot of this information I got came from a paper by Tara Ann Carter at the Yale National Initiative. Okay. Um, and yeah, the the first wave began in the nineteen sixties, which which coincided with a generation of Native people who were coming of age, and they'd been educated primarily in English, but not in the. Uh, the boarding schools that had been established in like the late 19th and early 20th centuries to assimilate native kids into like white American culture. Um, And that it coincided in the, in the sixties and seventies with a a willingness among historians to consider the like colonization of the Americas and the expansion of, of uh, like the, the European cultures from a native perspective Novel. Yep. Yeah. And then, (laughs) and, and this period also gave, like it was happening with a lot of like native protest movements and, and it led to like altogether led to more interest in native cultures from like outside and, and from inside, like they were being allowed to like retain their culture as, as well as, you know, the the, um, people were establishing like native studies programs at different colleges and stuff like there There was more interest from both outside and inside. Um, so, yeah, the, the first wave of this movement, which includes um, N. Scott uh Mamaday's Housemaid of Dawn, Leslie Marmon Silko's Ceremony, and a James Welch's Winter in the Blood. This first wave was about like remembering those roots and kind of reconciling them with, with modern culture after this these decades of you know attempted assimilation. And then the second wave, which comes up like mostly in the, like it starts in the eighties and continues and, and Erdrich is a part of it. It's um, a bit more like contemplative and ambivalent. And it's about exploring what it means to be native American in this time where I I guess like government and w- where other cultures are like less actively trying to erase you. I'm not going to say that's not still happening and th- that they don't still face struggles and like being a distinct culture, but um.
0: But the very act of, of government, and it's evidenced in this book, the very act of government, like making room is done in a condescending way. Like mm-hmm. uh, there's a, there's a line about,, um, you know, whether or not they were allowed to practice their religion until like the late 80s or something Mm -hmm. and it involved whenever they would go to the titular roundhouse to to engage in a ceremony they'd have to like bring a bunch of bibles with them that they could like bust out when they see (laughs) when they see like the inspector's car coming over the hill um so yeah it's there's that i don't know it, it cuts both ways where like it's not it might not feel like active erasure but it is certainly not empowerment yeah, and then how yeah, do you navigate definitely. that? Sure.
1: So, yeah, I just wanted to, to throw that stuff out there as a as sort of background. Like, we we are not, obviously, we are not native people. We are not super familiar with the culture. And so I think we're going to try not to, like, directly comment on it
0: ourselves. Yeah, I think the book is, is a great starting point for someone coming at it from that angle because it raises mm-hmm. a lot of interesting questions um, and gives you some stuff to chew on without uh, feeling i don't know didactic and also Mm uh inviting you into the world very easily so
1: yeah so hopefully if you're if you're coming at it from that perspective as we are like hopefully some of those names and and some of these keywords that you can plug into your favorite search engine (laughs) (laughs) will help you explore a little bit more as i as i think we hope to in the in the coming months like we definitely want to um, do a better job representing not just like native authors, but you know more authors of of more cultures on the show, and we're trying to think of like how to do that without being without sounding and being more hurtful than helpful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um So there you go. I think that's I think that gets us to to the next part, right?
0: Yeah. Let's take a quick ad break, and we'll come back and talk about the roundhouse. <laughs> Andrew, it's a new year and it's time for a new me a new digital me i like you fine like i don't think you need to change that much yeah but my digital footprint my digital personality i think could be better
1: you're just talking about changing your brands like changing the narrative around the craig brand
0: yeah i would like to <laughs> it's inc- a toxic brand right now <laughs> it really is and i need some help um What do you have for me, or who do you know that can help me with my problem?
1: Well, good news. Somebody's paying us to read an ad that just happens to help you with this particular problem. It's our pals at Squarespace. Oh, those guys. Those guys. Uh, Squarespace is a website that helps you make websites. They help you showcase your work, blog or publish content, sell products and services of all kinds, including yourself. That's right. And promote your physical or online business and all kinds of other stuff tv vcr repair and more (laughs) squarespace does all this by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers they give you powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online anything Um, and they give you the ability to customize your look and feel your settings your products and more with just a few clicks you don't got no code you don't have to patch or upgrade anything ever and if you do have problems they have 24 7 award-winning customer support that helps you do the thing that you want to do Um, so if you are interested in starting a cool new website and change, changing the narrative around your toxic brand, you can go to to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch for real, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial and the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.
0: New year, new digital you. Andrew, I have to break the news to you. Okay. That this book has nothing to do with the hit Nickelodeon television show, Roundhouse. I, nor <sighs> does it have any kicks in it, I don't think.
1: It's, there are no Roundhouse kicks. It's not related to Nickelodeon show roundhouse which you weren't really breaking the news because i have made this joke i feel like 30 times
0: <laughs> well it's so good that i laugh so hard that i just black out and forget it so and I you needed... forget so
1: you may kind of stealing jokes now well i can't steal kind a joke that i forgot you told and being the dave cook of overdue the dave, dave cook. cook who's dave cook
0: <laughs> who's dave cook
1: just do the book Just tell me about the book that you read
0: as I said before the break, so the book takes place in 1988 on an unnamed reservation in North Dakota. Our main character, uh, his name is Joe. Um, his other nickname is Oops. Um, <laughs> his, his parents uh, got married and had him a little later in life, so his grandpa always calls him Oops because they- That's not nice. It's, it's not no, a nice it's nickname. It's not a nice nickname. Um he chose the name Joe when he was six. Um, his born his like given name is like Anton Basil Kutz, uh C-O-U-T-T-S. But, and his dad goes by Anthony. He doesn't want to be a junior, so he picked his name Joe. Lo and behold, when he picked it, he didn't know that that was also like his great-grandfather's name. So he still ended up with a family name. Um, a couple, couple people call it Oops, but it doesn't happen too often.
1: Nobody should call anybody Oops. No, it's not a great name. Um, if you want to make your kid feel super unwanted, <laughs> you refer to them being an accident a lot. I'm Not it's speaking not, from experience or anything. It's really
0: not great. Here no, we go. Also, if you if you have kids, you have more than one. Try and not try not to use the same nickname for all of them. Like, Wait, call them all "oops." Don't call them all "sport." Like, oh, okay, all right. give them different
1: nicknames. Thought we were going please. to a, a, like "oops" all children. Oops all <laughs>
0: children. Yeah the factory just couldn't stop making children <laughs> oops uh joe's dad is a tribal judge a well-respected one in the community um he is as you said one of the narrators in plague of doves um and when you
1: say when you say tribal judge um my understanding is that there are a lot of snarls between like U.S. law and state law and like tribal slash reservation law. Is this this book dealing with some of those like gray areas and and areas
0: of overlap? Oh, explicitly cool. Um, so the the I can't quite get a f- feel from the book what the exact size of the community is, other than that it is small. Um, we spend most of our time, you know, it is it is exclusively from Joe's perspective um we spend time with his family um his kind of like slightly outside of the nuclear family relatives and acquaintances his like buddies from school um and like one family that figures pretty heavily into the plot but his parents are both involved in um like the civics of the community so his dad is a judge and his mom works, uh, like, I think in the, like, tribal office in terms of, like, enrolling people and registering whether or not they're part of the tribe. Working with the Bureau of Indian Affairs to, to make that stuff happen. Okay. So you get the, the particulars of all that red tape have really tangible effects on the lives of the main characters, which is very often the case for folks who... Uh, I don't know. I feel like a, a lot of us just like government just exists, and it doesn't. If you're pretty comfortable, um, you don't really worry about it. And then, as we're seeing in the news a lot today, as we record this in January 2019, there's a lot of people <laughs> who have very explicit relationships with the way government works and what it can provide yeah. for you. Um, and this, I also book- wanted to just real
1: quick ask you about. Um, the the use of the word Indian in this book, because I sure. know just uh, it is baked into a lot of like the legal language around yes. tribes at the like the U.S. level. So, is that when we say Indian here, are we talking primarily about like how how does the book use it? I the guess? book is uses the word... it way
0: more than any other like Native or you know tribal name or or anything like that. Uh, most okay. of the characters use the term to refer to themselves and to. Uh, like tribal law as Indian law, um, I yeah, will. I just, I just kind of wonder how
1: much of that is like habit born of of necessity. Yeah, if I don't you're know. if yeah. you're dealing with the U.S. government a lot, yeah, it's just it's interesting.
0: Yes, um, and they're not. It's also interesting because some of the th- the things you mentioned about the Native Renaissance and that second wave of authors dealing with like the reality of being. Of tribal descent today and and living on the reservations today, um, is interesting because it feels like the way that Indian is used by characters in this book is kind of like a catch all term for the culture and for your relationship to the U.S. government and to white society mm-hmm. in as mu- like as opposed to the older characters in the book who will cite specific tribes or nations or people. Okay, um, so. We get early on in the book, it's Joe, we're introduced to his, he's a 13-year-old boy, um, he's living with his parents, um, and the central event of the book is that early on his mom like leaves to go get a file from the office and then just doesn't come back. And this causes some like ruminations on manhood and how men and women relate in this particular culture at this particular time where they are like they can't they almost like don't realize that they are setting their emotional clocks by women the men in, the men in this book do mm-hmm. um, the exact quote is women don't realize how much uh, store men set on the regularity of their habits. We absorb their comings and goings into our bodies, their rhythms into our bones. Our pulse is set to theirs. And as always on a weekend afternoon, we were waiting for my mother to start us ticking away on the evening. And so you see her absence stopped time. Huh? Uh, and it's like, it comes at a part in the book where you don't know what the bad thing, what the big plot thing is going to happen. So it's just the main character kind of being like, well, I, this is just the way things are. And I kind of don't know if I'm satisfied with that. I wish something like bigger would happen in my life. And of course it's kind of a monkey's paw situation. Sure, Um, Because what does happen is that they do find his mom and she has very clearly been sexually assaulted is like covered in blood, smells like gasoline. um, And they immediately have to like take her to the hospital and, and get her treated. Uh, And so the first half of the novel is them trying to figure out who did it. And then the second half, I was surprised at how early you kind of get a really strong sense of who did it. Uh, (laughs) And then the second half of the novel is like, what are you going to do about it? And what can be done about it? Like, what does the system allow you to do? And what do you have to do because the system doesn't work for you?
1: You're getting into some vigilante justice.
0: You are going to get into some vigilante justice, huh? That's always fun. Isn't it? (laughs) And the book, so, okay, so let's get into the particulars. You raised the question of, um, like, tribal law and how it intersects with, like, U.S. law. I sure did. So the actual crime took place at the community's roundhouse, which is a Place of spiritual importance that's on reservation land, but it's pretty far away from um, where most people live and work. And what's I, when you
1: say spiritual importance, like, is it like what what position does it occupy in in Native life? Is it are, are we talking like a church type building or something like more used than that, less used than that?
0: It feels like a little less used than that, and. Um, But it does have like mythic importance um, because of when it was built and the story behind it that uh, they gave like it's this long story that he learns in the middle of the book um, that one of their ancestors uh, had to track down his mother who was may or may not have been possessed by an evil spirit. He was supposed to kill her. He refused to and then to save his tribe uh, he actually had to kill this buffalo which is one of the last buffalo that anybody knew about um, and because it gave him shelter in this winter storm and then you know provided for them uh, they built this house uh, in commemoration of this of this animal that guided them and they conduct ceremonies there okay um,
1: so so not necessarily like a, a community center or something no, but no, no still no. something that's important to the life of this community yes and as i i think i said before the
0: break they it is set away from where people you know go about their day-to-day business um partially because up until a time in the 80s that the book talks about they had to be kind of secretive about what they were doing there they had to treat it like it was they had to treat it like it was a church even though they were not doing like catholic church stuff there okay um and the primary suspect in the crime is a white man who is not necessarily subject to tribal law. Uh, it is, it may or may not be subject to federal law because it might actually be on uh, what is considered state park land. And then it may not actually apply to that because it might be on what is considered fee land, which is land that's been sold by the tribe and then falls under other statutes. And all of these like, um, look, imagine some of the worst gerrymandered districts that people have pointed out in recent mm-hmm. reporting, mm-hmm. and how it's like, how can this county be in five different congressional districts? Mm-hmm. The crime scene is sort of like that, where depending where you are, literally like foot by foot on this plot of land, different courts and different law enforcement might be responsible. Okay. So it's
1: like the, the, Goofy kicking Donald of
0: <laughs> it, it really is of native reservations. Yes. Um and so when a little it's a, closer to halfway through the book that they finally get uh Joe's mom to talk about what happened and actually describe the event to them. Um and Joe's dad is like really pestering her to say do you know where this happened to you? And her head was covered, so she didn't see where she was. And she is he is, like, badgering her to be like, well, did you go uphill or downhill? Were you in the woods? Were you on gravel? Uh, was there a fence nearby? Um, and she can't answer it, and she's getting really pissed at him. And he's like, listen, there are three classes of land that meet there, and that will depend on whether or not we can convict and who can convict the person if we ever find them. Sure. Um So that is like, that is a central procedural question that the book does a really great job of uh, manifesting as like lived experience.
1: Yeah. And and I, from what I read about, um, like mostly reviews of the book, it, it seems like, like the big question is, if it happened on like U S land then it's just like the, the land that happened on dictates who it's, who is going to handle like prosecution. And then that like has huge implications for like how seriously the crime is taken and how likely the guy who did it is, is to get away with it.
0: Yes. So the, um, in the afterward of the book, uh, Erdrich talks about this 2009 amnesty international report about Stats of domestic and sexual assault. I think,
1: yeah, I think I I think I read about this because yeah. it's it's what like one in three Native women will be sexually assaulted, and something like what like eighty percent of those will be perpetrated by non Native person. Yep. Yeah.
0: Um, and so in 2010, uh, there was a law passed called the Tribal Law and Order Act that gave tribal courts wider jurisdiction in sentencing and enforcement. Um and it was spurred mostly because of domestic violence cases. So this
1: book is happening in the 80s. In right? the 80s. So yes. It's not that's not this would be a case that would give rise to the law but it would not be it would not be about the law. this book would not be about that law because it didn't exist yet. Okay. Correct. Right.
0: Correct. Um the book so from a from a structural perspective Joe is the narrator. He's a first person narrator and actually this is a departure for Erdrich. A, a lot of her I think almost all of her other books are like multiple narrators kind of um, different community voices telling a story from different angles. And she really draws it down into Joe for a couple of reasons. But the one that's most pertinent to what we were just talking about is that when he grows up, he does become a public prosecutor. And so you get this little moments where he is like nodding to that and nodding to, okay, well it was different back then. And here's, how I'm feeling about it now, or this is how it inspires me and in what I'm doing now. Um, so it's, can, it's,
1: is it told from the perspective of him in the future looking back on something that happened in his past? Is that the deal? Y-
0: yes, but you never... What Erdrich doesn't do is say, like, I'm Joe sitting here in 2010 telling you a story. It's just all inside his brain. Like, there's no, okay. like, framing device or anything like that. Sure. Um, He will... He does so like my impression based on on what we kind of just were talking about is that he is you know you know he's living today, and so he would be someone practicing law as this act gets passed and thinking mm-hmm. about his own relationship to these deeds and and what the law does and does not allow him to do right um so the only the other character that I think gets at this kind of gray fuzzy definition angle of the book um because that's a that's a big through line of like where do we draw borders around law is also like where do we draw borders around identity Mm -hmm. um and the book talks especially when when law and identity are are, like baked in together
1: like this yeah
0: um because the the reason that the guy who commits the who commits the rape um the reason he's there and the reason that Joe's mom is there is actually because of like a native girl who has been in, who like has born the child of the, like in the book, the governor of South Dakota or something. Okay, And mm-hmm. he is like paying her hush money to go away. And the, this guy Lyndon is, is like, I don't know if he feels like he, he actually owns her or wants her or something and Lyndon would be the name of the kind of a person who yeah. would do this
1: sort of thing, huh? <laughs> yeah. He's
0: from a not great white family that we that we meet the Larks. Um, and when Joe's mom shows up to deal with that situation is is when he he commits the crime. And just big, big apology to anybody out there named Linden Yeah. Who
1: has not perpetrated
0: bad and crimes. No, this guy is just really bad, though. So his family, the Larks, um... There was a a case that Joe's dad decided that was one of the few where the tribal court was actually allowed to or able to um, exert jurisdiction on a non-native owned business, which was Mm -hmm. like a a little like legal feat that Joe's dad accomplished because they were, you know, treating uh, tribe members as customers and, and what they were doing to them. And then their daughter, Linda... Um, who's Lyndon's brother? Uh, Lyndon's twin sister. Excuse me, not brother. Lyndon's oh, twin okay, sister. all right. I was Whoop. gonna
1: say Lin- Lyndon and Linda.
0: Yep. Uh huh. Oh boy. And the Glarks did this thing where they had twins, and Linda was born, and she appeared to have some severe birth defects that might uh, prevent her from surviving. So they told the nurse and the doctor to just take her away and don't try to save her. Well, the nurse did save her. Uh, but of course, by the time that happened, the Larks had basically disowned her already, so they didn't want her around. Uh, and Linda ended up being adopted by a native family uh, on the reservation. So she has, she is a white woman raised by a native family, which, as the book points out, is rather unique um, of a situation in this community. And usually uh, you hear stories about it going the other way. Um, and what that means for like Linda's identity. And then so is she a member, which community is she a, is she a member of? Which family is she a member of? Um, and her whole story comes to a head uh, when she realizes what her brother has done and tells uh, Joe's family the story about when uh, Lyndon was dying and needed a kidney transplant. And her estranged mother, who'd never contacted her, reached out to try and get her kidney. Hmm. That's
1: cool. That's like, how do you, what's the Christmas card like in that family (laughs) after that happens? It's pretty bad. Like, dear Linda, thank you for the kidney. You're still not in the will, but we do appreciate the organs. XOXO. Happy holidays, Mom. <laughs> it's
0: really it's really terrible. Mm-hmm. And she knows that he's a bad person and she knows that you know, he's a he's a bad person even earlier in his life, and she knows that she shouldn't, but she can't help herself because she always has felt like something is missing. And she's caught, kind of in between. She is. She has like the same fault lines that belie this case, belie her very identity. Not belie. See, but that's
1: that's the thing about twins that they don't tell you is there are two bodies in the womb, but there's only one soul.
0: So <laughs> for
1: every set of that's twins, what, that's what do they you, don't tell are, you. Are you the one that has the soul or not?
0: Yeah, and turns out she's feeling lacking. Just um, just
1: think about just think about it.
0: Uh, so that her whole situation kind of reinforces some of the is, is an interesting angle into the other identity questions that the book is raising which you know comes a lot from joe feeling like this teenager on a reservation and what is his place in the world and uh what kind of person is he going to grow up to be um and then this like seismic event happens to him and happens to his mom and, and his family and he's going to be forever defined by it. So, so how does he carve out his identity in relationship to that? Mm-hmm. Um, and that like leads me to a, an element of the book that I think was the most surprising to me, uh, given that I, I knew the central like theme of that. This book was exploring uh, violence against native women and, and the ways in which the the system is not set up to properly handle them. Um, But it's also, like, a story about a 13-year-old boy just, like, growing up and going, like, getting into scrapes with his friends and, like, dealing with sexuality, which is an interesting question in a book that hinges on a rape,
1: right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, because that, like, how do you... How do you deal with knowing that when you are just barely able to understand the conditions that like created that
0: crime in the first place? Yeah. So when he's hanging out, he has he has a couple of boys that he hangs out with all the time, Andrew. And I was when I say like I was surprised, I was surprised by how if not fun, but like, I don't know, earnest and uh, kind of. Buildings Romani. The sections with him and his buddies felt like it just okay. It, it was a part of the book I wasn't expecting where he's hanging out with his friends Zach, Angus, and Cappy, and Cappy's like his best friend. He's the hot one in the group. There's always a hot one.
1: Yeah, I'm not, I know. <laughs> you know, just and it's such a burden. It too. is. Ugh.
0: I know you bear it so well. And oh, thank you. They they get it helps to be super hot. <laughs> um, and so like. Before we know exactly who it is, like, they get into almost, like, you know, not quite Stranger Things is an... I don't know why my brain went to Stranger Things. The boys do love sci-fi, so this is where maybe where my brain went there. But, like, the... That's just
1: one of the the bigger creative works in in the last few years that centers around a group of, like, adolescent boys. I don't know.
0: So, so yeah, sort of like a stand-by-me vibe also, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, Where they're, like, crawling around the crime scene and finding red herrings, and they stalk the new pastor in town because they think maybe he did it and so when they're outside his house waiting to i guess i don't know what they're gonna learn but he's watching alien in his living room and they haven't <gasps> seen alien yet so they watch oh, no. it through his window <laughs> that's <laughs> like
1: a creepy bad movie of, i mean it's not bad it's just like it's ugh. yeah
0: but it's but it's like kind of fun because it's how they still want to watch the movie you know um there's a whole section on how much they love Star Trek, which I thought was kind of just... I, I know if you had read this section, you your heart would have been kind of touched, Andrew. Naturally, okay. we yeah. all wanted... What did they have to say about Star Trek? Okay. Um, naturally... Let me just, let me
1: just d- evaluate whether it's accurate and canonical and sure. stuff.
0: Naturally, we all wanted to be Worf. We all wanted to be Klingons. Worf's mm-hmm. solution to any problem was to attack. Sure. Um, we liked da- uh, Data. Data... Data? data Data you don't you know how data is pronounced I got I got mistaken We I'm liked data, data because he mocked white people by being curious about stupid things that the crew would do or say <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty good. I don't good. know if
1: that was the intended effect of Data, but sure, I like that read of him.
0: <laughs> uh, they He recognizes that they were supposed to identify with Wesley because he was like the young one. Nobody
1: identifies with Wesley.
0: He says he was a hum, a bumbling white town baby and wore ludicrous sweaters. Yeah, no, good. he sucks. Wesley sucks. Uh, they like Jean-Luc Picard. Despite him, despite him being an old man, he is French, so they liked him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, They liked Riker better after he grew a beard... Everybody, yes. Yeah. So did everybody. Um, And this kind of comes to a head with, the reason I go into this, Joe says, is that because of this show, we set ourselves apart. We made drawings, cartoons, and even tried to write an episode. We pretended we had special knowledge. We were starting to get our growth and were anxious how we'd turn out. In TNG, we weren't skinny, picked on, poor, motherless, or scared. We were cool because no one else knew what we were talking about. Um, That's like the crux of... A lot of 80s, 90s nerddom, I feel like, and certainly the way that it has been canonized as, as mm-hmm. like an element of culture. Um, and in this book in particular, it is like a way it is interesting that they have like taken, you know they've taken to these characters in in their own way and, and as it maps to their own lived experience.
1: I am honestly a little surprised to hear that as 13-year-old boys, they don't have a take on the women
0: in TNG. Oh, they do. Like, do they? They, oh, okay. they do. They, yes. Um, they talk about the hot ones that Worf was with. They talk about, De- is it Deanna Troy, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, and how she's very attractive. So this mm-hmm. all kind of boils over into, like, Joe has a secret folder in his room that's labeled homework, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Um, to be recreated as a as a digital folder
1: on and 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 many people's like documents Uh folders on (laughs) their
0: taxes quote unquote Mm -hmm. um they talk a lot about you know women that they find attractive um joe has a crush on his uncles who he thinks is his wife but they're they're not actually married this white woman named sonia um and uh So they are kind of having these like middle school boy sex conversations. Like Cappy gets into a relationship with a girl from the Catholic church and has like a whole like escapade where they sleep together and it becomes a huge like scandal. Whoa. And so they are having these like quintessential uh, teenage like horny boy scenes um, that are mostly played for comedy, mostly played for relatability. Um, they end up like in scenes with this funny grandma named Grandma Ignatius, uh, who likes to make boner jokes all the time. Yes, um, Grandma Ignatius. So I'm gonna, just going to read you two of the funny things that Grandma Ignatius re- says, because like, I was, again, surprised that this book was taking the time to find humor and relatability in sex and, you know, developing your feelings about it when it's also about violent crime. Um, so they go to grandma Ignatius house at one point uh, to like get some food. And they, they go before they go in, they all like check in with each other to not say words that might be like sex double entendres. Cause they don't want her to make a bunch of bad jokes. <laughs> Um, I feel like this is this is how all of my friends approach talking to me <laughs> about things. I think so. She uh, she says at one point, "You boys, listen up. You want to learn something? Want to learn how to keep your little peckers hard all your life? Go and go. <laughs> Live clean like old Napoleon. Liquor makes you quicker, and that's no good. Bread and lard keeps you hard." <laughs> no, <laughs> you can't say that, Grandma. Grandma and then uh, there's a there's a later scene where she is hanging out with the grandpa named musham um and she's talking about whether or not he can still get it up because he's like 101 years old and she says after a a hundred years of hard use it would be a miracle if you only prayed more she cackled musham's frail shoulders were shaking pray for a hard-on that's a good one maybe i should pray to saint joseph he was a carpenter and worked (laughs) with wood
1: if my grandma had said any of this to me at any point, I would have turned to ashes and blown away on the wind and then like haunted her house for the rest of forever.
0: Yeah, it's it's hilarious. It's very funny.
1: Oh no. And th-
0: that whole like saints and sex joke stuff goes on for like a whole page and a half. It's really good.
1: My dad and my great grandma when they got together would just sit in a corner and talk to each other and they would be cussing up a storm. And my grandmother and my mother did not think this was funny, but <laughs> they were very wrong because it was extremely funny. And so that's the closest analog I have I don't think- is watching my dad and my like 75 year old great grandma sit in a corner and just like cuss
0: about stuff. <laughs> I don't think I have a, like a Randy or like naughty relative like humorous story, but I get the appeal and, and the book does a, the the book does a good job of like showing how it can be mortifying, but also entertaining.
1: I feel like if you, if you look around the family reunion and you don't see the horny Uh relative, then you are (laughs) the horny
0: relative. So I think it's you. (laughs) Uh, So then like, this is all underneath Joe as a character, right? It's part of his background as a character Um, I alluded to his Uncle Whitey's um, partner, Sonia. They run a gas station together. Sonia has this alter ego. She used to be a stripper. Um, And after her and Joe form a bond after they like find some money near the crime scene. And it's like Mm -hmm. it's all the money that the that the governor was using to pay this woman off. They don't know it at the time. Um, And they get into conflict because she starts spending some of the money, even though she told Joe to hide all of it. And they put it in a bunch of separate bank accounts and stuff. Uh-oh. And he starts getting really mad at her. And she's like, listen, I'm just trying to like live the best life I can. My, you know, whitey beats the crap out of me. Maddie beats the crap out of me all the time. And I would like, you know, like to enjoy my life a little bit. Um, and there's a scene where she is going to, dance for the 101-year-old grandpa like as a birthday present and joe is in the house and they get into a fight about the money and she's like leave i need to do this thing and he's like no or i'm gonna tell someone about the money so i'm gonna be here and watch this and it's really charged and not great and she gets really upset at him and kind of lays into him for taking advantage of her in that situation um And we get one of these scenes where the present-day narrator version of Joe pops in. And he tells us that um, when she left that day, she, like, left some of the clothes that she had brought for this, like, performance behind. And he kept, like, a tassel from her clothes. And he keeps it in one of his, like, drawers where he keeps his clothes. And he says, I'll come across it by chance on purpose because every time I look at it, I am reminded of the way I treated Sonia and about that way she treated me or about how I threatened her and all that came of it, how I was just another guy, how that killed me once I really thought about it. Um, She called me a gimme, gimme, asshole. Maybe I was. You're going to have to put that E tag on the whole episode uh, Yeah, maybe. Um, But it's what I was really impressed by was the way the book took Joe's like nascent teenager understanding of sex on a spectrum with like gendered power dynamics that's on the same spectrum as the like assault of his mother Mm -hmm. and it doesn't like belabor the one-to-one connection there um, but it is it's I think before we started recording you asked me like how is this book not sensationalizing like sexual violence? Cause like it can be very sensational in genre fiction.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I talk specifically about like the, the thing I, I think the, the biggest touch point I can, I can think of is like how, how game of Thrones repeatedly uses like sexual violence and violent violence against women as a plot point and like a motivator for the male characters. Yes. Yes. And that's kind of a, kind of a lazy trope that, that that just happens a lot in fiction because that's how lazy tropes work but i yeah i wanted to know how how this book handles that differently and, and, and and yeah just just tell me more
0: yeah so the fact that he is 13 puts it it is from his perspective and so it is a young man being motivated by what happened to his mother um which does lead to him seeking vigilante justice and i i won't go into the like tragic results of that on other characters in the book cuz i, I mm-hmm. think that is that was surprising when i read it and if someone goes to read this book i don't want to take that away from them um okay. but he does seek and exact revenge <laughs> that is that should not surprise anyone um, is it satisfying when he gets his revenge or is no, it just kind of sad all
1: around it is
0: it is Everyone in the book is relieved because they understand that it is perhaps morally a good thing for this for this man to be punished, right? But that there is something lost in, and it is a reminder of the ways in which they are not allowed to properly seek justice. Sure. Okay. Um, so the the two there are like, and and so like we talked about the sex and interest in sex versus sexual violence, because I think that through line helps tie a rape as a central plot point to the thematic concerns of this boy growing up and, and Mm -hmm. being aware of his own relation of his own like presence as a man um, and what he, what he has done and and what he should strive to do. Um, But there's also like competing religious beliefs in this book about where evil comes from um, so as I alluded to before, there's a story that uh, Joe hears while like Mouchon is talking in his sleep um, about a woman who is possibly possessed by a Wendigo uh, mm-hmm. or I think other versions of that noun or Wendigo. Um, and that's just evil and you need to kill it and you need to excise it from the world. Um, sure. And when he's talking to the Catholic priest, Father Travis um, and they're talking about like, why do people do evil things if God is good? Like, why does that happen? Well, because God gave us free will. So to to prevent that um, would be God like stepping on on our own free will. Mm-hmm. But all evil things beget some good. Meaning, like you learned a lesson, so you're going to make the world a better place. Or if you're hurting, you might identify with other people hurting and be more willing to lend a hand. Um, which like in the book feels like some real cold comfort and not what Joe wants.
1: Yeah. I mean, th- that kind of thing is always, I mean, it's always it's cold tough, comfort, yeah. but, but it's, it's, that, that's the best thing you can do with, with misfortune is to like try and learn from it and try to make something better out of it. And yeah, it sucks cause it doesn't help the people who'd suffered from the initial misfortune a lot of the time, but, yeah. but you're, you're kind of doing it out of from a place of like empathy and from a place of like forward thinking and, and trying to try and make sure. And that that's the, that's something that bugs me about, about the the point of view that says, you know, I I suffered so you should have to suffer too. Like I think that happens a lot in like the the health insurance debate and like the uh the higher education and like student loan debate. Yep. Is, you know, I had to do this so you should have to do it too. I think that's the wrong lesson to draw from having a hard time doing something. I think you you should approach those problems from from trying to try if you had a hard time especially like you you should approach that stuff from trying to make it so that other people don't have to worry about that stuff
0: yeah and and so what's interesting is so father travis's viewpoint doesn't feel satisfactory to joe the lessons from the story about um i think the man's name is nana push who's another character from her novels um and the fact that he does not end up killing his his potentially possessed mother um is that like the explicit calls for revenge and violent justice might beget more bad than good. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we see what happens as a result of the actions that Joe takes to exact revenge, um, people are like, might feel a little safer that that guy is gone but then, then they look at Joe and know what he did, or but no one says it out loud. Like everyone's just kind of aware that he did it, um, but but no one wants to say anything about it. And and of course, the fact that they that the system can't, the system is ill equipped is is again like hurts even more than than what they were trying to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it doesn't feel cheap it doesn't feel um, it doesn't feel like you're your classic fridging trope in a way mm-hmm. um, yeah. because the other thing that Erdrich does really well are these little moments of pause and stillness where a character like takes in information or registers an emotional beat in response to difficulty and challenge And in the first half of the book, a lot of that, are Joe and his dad and his and Joe's mom not knowing how to live together after the event. like she just wants to spend her entire life in her bed. Mm-hmm. They don't really know how to pick up the pieces with her gone. Um, and I don't know, there's just a, there's just a lot of really powerful imagery around um, one scene in particular. And, and then we can kind of wrap up here is that okay. they're coming home, Joe and his dad from something and they come in the back door to the kitchen. And the first thing that Joe hears when his dad goes in is their mom, like dropping a casserole dish and it's shattering all over the floor. And then she just walks away from the scene. numb, mm-hmm. And of course they surprised her and she is on edge and he realizes that he'd heard his dad yelling things like, I'm home, like from the driveway just to kind of make her feel at ease and not surprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the moment he, he does, it's not just that, Oh, she's hurting and we surprised her and scared her, but it's, Oh, she's hurting. We surprised and scared her. And she didn't respond to the situation the way we all used to. She, we would have had a laugh about it. We, she would have, we would have cleaned it up as a family. Um, and so the sections where it's like oh this trauma happened and i'm going to get revenge on whoever did it are balanced by these scenes of people just trying to live with trauma um that pre- that prevents it from feeling like the kind of game of thronesy like trauma as a as a motivating force right where it's more about where it's just like like some
1: man gets mad about it or some woman gets like closed off and like vengeful about it and then like that's the extent of the thing yeah yeah
0: you know but plenty of characters in this book experience trauma but then it isn't just that like that we usually see them live through it a bit and then we usually meet the new version of them on the other side Um, and then it's
1: rarely referenced ever again or it's just kind of like an understood in, in, yes. part of their character that is, that is not like a it's it's not an ongoing thing. No, no. Like it's a it's a way we understand how the character got to where they are, but it it doesn't feel like an organic part of their thing. To, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, like I a, know. Yeah, yeah.
0: when it, when it's not when it's not handled well, that that certainly happens. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I dug this book a lot. Um. Again, I, I was taken by Joe as a team boy and his crew and that whole thing and how it interacted with the larger like themes and social concerns of the book because I think it can give you some grounding if you're not familiar with that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, anything else, Andrew? I don't think so. I think I'm good. Okie dokie. Well, if, uh, if other folks have read this book uh, and want to talk about it they can send us an email at overdue at gmail.com or hit us up online at twitter online on social media <laughs> hit us up on the
1: worldwide web we're aol keyword overdue
0: <laughs> at twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod um got a lot of great responses to our recent twilight episode um so thanks to alex christine marion marcy melissa yunira emma Emily, Britt, Valerie, Kay, Maya, Erica, Sophia, Chris, Steve, and many more. Um, Oh, I I did forget to mention this. Uh, Erdrick does give a couple shout-outs to organizations that are doing good work in this realm in terms of helping people with legal services. Um, So you might look into the Indian Law Resource Center, among others, um, if you do want to learn more about this work and and about these issues. Sure, Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to
1: overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website where we just have a treasure trove of information about our past and future episodes. We have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and RSS. You can subscribe using any of those services. Um, you can also subscribe in Spotify. I haven't added a link because I keep forgetting to do it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of you have been finding us just just fine in Spotify anyway. So great. Good for you. You're so smart. What, what else do you want from me? Um, we also have a, a new listener page that you can uh, hit up on that website and and find some episodes that we particularly like. A lot of people who are just trying out the show for the first time go to a book that they know and try to, to get into the show that way, and that's great. But if you... Just like to to find episodes that we particularly are are happy with, and that that's a good resource. Um, I wanted to say we will pretty soon, right, be on an episode of the Worst Bestsellers podcast. Yeah, um, Ren- Renata and Kate had us on to revisit the wonderful world of of The Secret. Oh yeah, we read personal, definitely real accounts of how The Secret changed people's lives. And it was horrible, but the episode was super fun. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Um, they are at the worst bestseller on Twitter if you want to follow them. Um, and then next week, I am going to be reading uh, The Name of the Wind, which is the first book in the King Killer Chronicle series by Patrick Rothfuss. I can't say King Killer Chronicle <laughs> without feeling very melodramatic about it like every every word in that even the compound word like every word is more dramatic than the word before
0: That's true and if you are uh, if you haven't been following our stop homer time series on Pod, we will be posting our new joint episode this Friday uh January 25th
1: it's going to be covering books 16 to 19 so we're getting getting to the end of it.
0: Closing out our time in Ithaca. Andrew, thanks for talking about a book with me this week.
1: Thanks for talking about a book with me too. I feel like we don't thank each other enough for doing our the basic obligations of our podcast. So new, thanks. New year, new you. New year, new us. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to our stupid book podcast as always we will be back next monday with a steaming hot new episode just for you and until we see you again please try to be happy
0: That was a HeadGum
1: Podcast. <laughs> this is like the microphone can't hear the face that you're making.
0: <laughs> Steaming hot.